happens to the Muslim woman living in a closed-off Middle Eastern country who never hears about another God besides Allah? She never hears about Jesus. She just has no opportunity to, and she faithfully follows her religion as well as she can. What happens to the tribal man cut off from the world who lives in a distant jungle somewhere who thinks there must be a God and pursues him as best as he knows how within his tribal customs, but he never hears about Jesus? What happens to them? When they die or in the judgment, what happens to them? Do you ever wonder about that? I wonder about those things. Um, those are the kind of things we debate in seminary. We would sit around and talk about, and we're like, ah, what, what do you think happens? What do you think happens to these people? Are they forever condemned to be apart from God simply because they didn't know about Jesus? Does their effort, does their attempts to find some kind of God count for anything? Will God hold them accountable on Judgment Day and be like, listen, you never heard about Jesus? Tough. I'm sorry. Or will he show mercy? There's all kinds of variations of this question. If you go online, you'll see all kinds of variation. In seminary, we had all variations. We were like, what about this scenario? What about this scenario? What do you think would happen here? And there were all kinds of answers thrown around in seminary. It's really easy for seminary students because we think we know everything. You're like in your 20s and you're in seminary and you're like, I have a little bit of theological education and now I think I know everything. And so we sat around and debated and dismantled this question and looked at it from all kinds of different angles. And I certainly joined in the debates. I was a lot more confident in all my answers in my 20s. And as I get older, I'm like, I don't know as much as I thought I did. Like, the answers aren't always as clean as I would like. The church has had different opinions throughout history in regards to this question. Some have said that in God's sovereignty, God has picked some humans to be in, and they're born into Christian families and to Western cultures where they hear about Jesus. And some he created for hell, and they're born in other countries and introduced to false gods and live and die. I think that this position is wrong. And I think this position misunderstands both the idea of sovereignty and I think it misrepresents Jesus. That just doesn't seem to be how Jesus operated while he was here. Reveal Another potential answer is that if people truly seek him, God finds a way to reveal himself to him, to them. In Iran, thousands of people have said they have seen a vision of Jesus. Missionaries aren't allowed into that country. People can't come. You can't actually publicly talk about Jesus. But Jesus is revealing himself to men and women looking for God. Perhaps most shocking is the similarity between these dreams and visions. Almost every one of the accounts says something along the lines of, I saw a vision of a man in a ro white robe. He had a cross. Sometimes it's on his shoulders. Sometimes it's over his heart. And he always says the same thing. I'm Jesus. And he explains who he is to them. Reverend Lazarus Yekhidnazer, founder of Transform Iran, who's training pastors and starting churches in Iran and Afghanistan, he said this, if you go to any gathering of Iranian or Afghanistan, Afghan Christians, and if you ask, how many of you have seen a dream that has touched you, if not radically transformed you, 90% of the people in the, in the room will raise their hands. When I went to India, I heard first-hand stories about people having visions of Jesus and being told where to go to learn more about him from Christians in their country. This one guy I spoke to, he didn't seem crazy, he seemed genuine. He's like, Alex, I was a Hindu my entire life, my family's always been Hindu. He goes, one day I was sitting in a theater, 
and he's like, all the lights went out, and I thought something was going wrong in the theater, but everybody else kept watching the movie, and he said, this man appeared to me, he was dressed in white, he said his name was Jesus, he began to talk to me about who he was, and he told me where to go to find out more about him. So Jesus is revealing himself to people in sometimes unexpected ways. Sometimes God does seem to be working that way, but for every one person that has a vision, there's hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of faithful Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists who don't. So what happens to them? Now, some throughout church history have argued for universalism. This is the idea that everyone everywhere will be saved regardless of what they do or believe. This has not been the prominent belief in church history, but some early church fathers took this position, and there have been elements of Christianity throughout history who have taken this position. Clement of Alexandria, he lived about 100 years after Jesus. He believed in the eventual salvation of every person. He understood divine punishment, as it's talked about in Scripture, as corrective and remedial rather than merely destructive. He saw... Uh, talks about judgment and hell as being like getting people to the point where they could be saved. Origen, about 200 years after Jesus, I think we have an artist sketch of him up here. Oh, David's always on top of it. It's like he senses where I'm going next. Um, Origen lived about 200 years after Jesus. He also suggested that all people might eventually attain salvation, but only after being purged of their sins through divine fire. Now, for a long time, I'm just going to be honest with you, when somebody took this position, I kind of looked down my nose at them, like I had some theological snobbery. It felt a little theological sloppy to me to be like, well, everybody's in, so don't worry about it. It felt like an easy answer to a hard question. It's kind of like, have you seen those where kids write crazy questions on the answer to uh, tests, and sometimes they get online and they share them around, and the test is like, what happened in Boston, Massachusetts in 1648 or whatever? And the kid writes, I'm not at liberty to say. That's top secret or something. You know, they come up with a little funny answer rather than answering the question because they don't know. And that's how it kind of felt to me. Like, people were trying to take the easy way out. And rather than say something that was hard or difficult, they were trying to find some wiggle room around it. Um, but I don't think we should judgmentally be too hard on people who take this position. They don't pull this idea out of thin air. There's actually a lot of scripture to back that idea up. There's a lot of verses suggesting that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was for everyone, all, that no one has been untouched by the work he did on the cross, that his death and resurrection were too big and too powerful to not affect everything and everyone everywhere forever. As my one seminary professor used to tell me, he goes, we will probably never understand how costly it was for God, the source of all life, to die. And he says, likewise, we will probably never fully realize how powerful and literally reality-changing it was for him to die. Let's just look at a couple of these verses that people pull when they take this, uh, they take this answer to the question. In John 12, verses 31 through 32, it says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. When I'm lifted up from the earth, this is Jesus, I will draw all men to myself. Romans 5, 18. As one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. In Luke 3, 6. All people will see God's salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
all shall be made alive. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to keep his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 6, it's good and pleases our Lord who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 John 2, 2, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 4, 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Um, there's a weird emphasis on all. Like, the Greek word here, though, is panpas, panpas, and it literally means all, everywhere, everyone. So, next time someone takes that position, don't be like, man, that's just such a lazy position. They have some scripture to back that up. I think the problem, though, is looking at these verses alone outside of the bigger context of scripture and other passages about judgment and justice. And when you do that, I think it gives you an incomplete perspective. But let me just say, I like this idea. Like, I wish it was true. I hope it's true. I hope that everybody's in and nobody's out. As a modern, progressive, educated Westerner, that sounds really great to me. Everyone is in, no one is out, and at least in theory, that sounds like a perfect case scenario. It's inclusive, and everyone can just do their own thing. I don't have to worry about myself. I don't have to worry about my friends or my family or my world. But there are a lot of verses about Jesus being judge and bringing judgment and justice. And I could dwarf the list we just read with another list of verses about judgment, but we don't want to be here all day, right? The lion dancers are going to come in here in a few hours, so we got to move out. And so we're just going to hit two. Here's two verses about judgment. John 5, verses 21 through 25. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that he may honor the Son, just as the Son honors the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes them who sent me has eternal life. He who does not, uh, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So somehow we have all these verses that what Jesus did was for all, for everyone, and then we have these verses where it's like, okay, some have life. There's going to be a judgment. What we do matters. What we believe matters. And so somehow we have to find a balance between these two. And when I think about it, like it's easy for me to say, I want everybody to be in, I want nobody to be out, but really a few quick case studies show that I don't really want everyone to be saved. I want justice. I want the people who oppressed others and trampled the weak to be held responsible for their deeds. Let's just do some thought experiments with me. Do we want Hitler in the kingdom of Jesus? Would Hitler, who hated Jews, really want to be in a kingdom ruled by a Jewish man? Do we force him where he doesn't want to go? To paraphrase Milton, some think it better to rule in hell rather than serve in heaven. I just don't see Hitler being like, you know what, I want to serve this Jewish man as king of the world. Is it loving to force someone into heaven, into the kingdom, when they really want to be in hell? 
I don't know, these are hard questions that we don't have good answers for. Let's consider another example. My friends were missionaries in Nepal, um, and reading accounts of that country's brothels, which lend money to poor families, and when they can't take their debts, they take their daughters, sometimes as young as 10 years old, to work as prostitutes. Um, one of the mission organizations who was working, Christian missionary organizations who was working over there, um, one of the leaders of that organization, I was reading his account, firsthand account of these practices, he called it rampant and abhorrent, and he said, I can't sleep at night because of what I've seen go on in that country. He says, I lay awake at night praying for the country to change because people as young as my daughter are being, are in terrible suffering every single night. So when I think of the exploitative uh, brothel owner who gets rich from destroying lives and no one can touch him, the man who takes advantage of the religious mindset in his country to exploit others and then go unpunished, who thinks he is free to do whatever he likes, when I think of that, I don't want everybody to get in. I I'm thankful we have a God of justice who will not let the guilty go unpunished. And I could go into story after story in our world to prove that there are evil men and women who think there are no consequences for treating other humans like insects. But for the sake of your sanity, I won't do that. I mean, the, uh, the local news already gets me depressed. Like, I'm not going to go into a bunch of stories that's going to get you depressed. But we have bought into an idea in the West, especially America, that people are basically good. And that if they got enough education and opportunity, the world would be a utopia. Yet you and I have stories of people in power who have cheated us or hurt us or felt like they could get away with it. People who had education and opportunity and didn't use it to bring a utopia to other people. They used it to oppress others. God sees what they did. He knows and he would not let the guilty go unpunished. In Romans 12 verses 19 through 21 it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, said the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. That's not an idea of burning him. That's an idea of hoping that he will repent. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, I love the superhero Daredevil. He's a Marvel superhero. He was blinded as a little boy. There was a chemical accident because an unethical company spilled these chemicals and he loses his eyesight, but his other senses become super heightened. And so he grows up, becomes a lawyer, and he tries to get justice for the oppressed. But when the justice system fails, he dresses up and deals out vigilante justice on the streets at night. And so, you know, he'll be in this court case and the really sleazy, terrible person will get off without being punished for their crimes. And so he'll go out at night and then beat them up. And something about that, uh, something about making sure that those who hurt the weak and innocent pay and don't escape to hurt others really connects with me. But notice that's not what Jesus teaches. We're not to become vigilantes. We don't have to become vigilantes because he is a judge who will not let the guilty escape. We don't have to take justice into our hands because he's not a God who's just going to look the other way and ignore the suffering of people. This is what worshiping Jesus looks like, though, to show kindness to our enemies, to hope they repent, and if not, to trust that Jesus is judge and will bring justice. I think a God who ignores the abusive pastor or priest who hurt dozens of children 
and hides behind organizational structures and religious hypocrisy. I think a God who ignores that person would not be a God of love. I want God to judge. A God who ignores the manipulative and dishonest stock trader who destroyed the retirement of thousands just to get rich in a pyramid scheme and then hops off to the Caribbean, uh, hops off to the Caribbean to live it up. A God who ignores that would not be a God of love. I want God to judge. So my problem with this whole question is not that there being a judge or a judgment or even a hell. My problem is what are the parameters of those who goes, go there? So back to our initial question, can a Muslim woman who faithfully pursues God as she understands him really be sent to hell because she never heard about Jesus? Is that fair? Is that just? Human sense of justice comes from God who is just. We just didn't one day wake up and we're like, we've uncovered justice. We understand what it means to be just. We know that our ideas of fairness and mercy and justice and love all come from God because those are aspects of his character that he has built into creation dallas willard said this justice without love will always fall short of what needs to be done it will never be as good as it should be justice without love will never do justice to justice nor will love without justice ever do justice to love indeed it will not be love at all for love wills the good of what is loved and that must include justice where justice is lacking Justice is a fundamental human good and a prerequisite of other human goods. The correct understanding of love and the intelligent overall orientation of our lives in terms of it as the source from which all standards of virtue and right behavior and all aspects of goodness of character coherently flow. That is certainly the view of, the, of Jesus and the New Testament. And in that view, love is everything. Dallas Willard, as always, I love everything he says, but he's not an easy read. What he's saying is Jesus is the perfect union of justice and love. We're an imperfect union of justice and love. We're marred by our selfishness, our own cognitive limits. This means I believe that none of us will look at the decisions Jesus makes in the world to come and will think, man, I could have done it differently. I would have done it differently. I would have done this and not that. I think we will all in the kingdom to come think, he did that better than I ever could have imagined. I don't think any of us will find fault in the parameters that Jesus uses because Jesus is the perfect union of justice and love. Here's Timothy Keller's response to this question. He's a conservative Calvinist theologian. So if you're listening online or maybe you're sitting here and you think, Alex, your progressive theology is bending the Bible into weird knots to get around this difficult question— this is what Timothy Keller says. The way more conservative. He's a Calvinistic. He's on a different position on the theological spectrum from me. And um, here's what he said. He was asked this question. God is more merciful than we are. Only God knows the heart. We should trust him. In the end, when we find out how he has disposed of things, we will not find any fault. When I've seen people who die and I was unsure of their faith, I didn't sit there and think, it's all hopeless. I don't know. I don't know how God does things. As far as we know, we say, know Christ, believe in Christ, and you can know you're in the kingdom. But we have a lot of things in the Bible on a need-to-know basis. When it comes to the eternal destinies of people after many years, I feel confident that I can rest in trusting in God's mercy, because I know he is more merciful and wise than I am. If you don't believe that, you'll spend a lot of time being anxious, anxious about yourself and anxious about others. That was Timothy Keller, 
when he was asked this very question in a Q&A he held in New York City. I heard a pastor once share a story. He did an art exhibit at his church, and it was to encourage non-Christians to attend. And on um, one of the pieces, someone had quoted Gandhi, and someone in his church had stuck a little sticky note on the bottom of the painting and said, well, too bad Gandhi's in hell. Is Gandhi in hell? Do we know that? Like, we take a lot of presumptions. Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. He was reported as reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through 7, twice a day for the majority of his life. How many times have you read Matthew 5-7? through 7? Maybe a couple dozen in my life? Gandhi read it twice a day for years and years of his life. But you say, Alex, he never publicly rejected Hinduism. He never joined a church. He was never baptized. Surely he's in hell. And yet, he studied Jesus' sermon on what it looks like to be a student or a disciple of how he lived and loved more faithfully than any Christian I've ever known. He actually practiced the Sermon on the Mount. He considered it the, uh, what taught him the nonviolent method that toppled the British Empire in India and made it a free nation. Where is Gandhi right now? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But like Timothy Keller, I trust that Jesus is more merciful than me, and I really want to sit down with Gandhi in the kingdom that is coming and discuss our mutual love of the Sermon on the Mount. How cool would that be? We want to draw lines, but I think Jesus drew a big circle, and the people in his kingdom might surprise us, and the people absent might surprise us too. We want to be judged. We want to be like, clear lines. And sometimes I don't think Jesus has given those because Jesus is judge and we're not. In Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What did Jesus tell us to do? Figure out who's in and who's out. Here's the parameters and you need to be like, no, what he, he told me to go and make disciples, and that's what I'm going to try to do everywhere I go, everywhere I can. I'm going to leave the question of who's in and who's out up to Jesus. In the words of Abraham, who spoke with God and walked with God and saw visions of God, Abraham, who was called a friend of God, in Genesis 18.25, Abraham says this, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Jesus is judge. I think we can trust in his mercy. There's questions I don't have answers to, and I would like and I would like to know what happens to that woman who faithfully serves the God as she understands them. I don't know, but I believe that Jesus is more merciful than I am because I wouldn't even know what mercy was if it wasn't for him. So as we end, three questions to think about, three things to do. Are you a disciple? We don't know who's in or who's out, but we know this. Disciples are kingdom citizens. Are you a disciple? Not like, do you believe some of that or do you, I, I don't care about that. Ha, is there a moment where you've said, I want to become an apprentice of Jesus's way of life? Because what he told us to do was to go everywhere and teach people to be apprentices of his way of life, to obey everything that they, that he commanded us. Has there been a moment where you've become an apprentice? of Jesus. Number two, pray for Jesus to continue to reveal himself in restricted countries and to questioning people. 
Jesus is showing up as in visions and dreams of people all over the world. In some of the most closed-off places on the planet, Jesus is showing up to people, and Christianity is exploding. Even as Christianity continues to decline in the West, in Africa, in Asia, Christianity is booming. There will soon be more Christians in those countries than there is in the rest of the world combined. Like, it's a dramatic movement of God. Pray that he continues to move and reveal himself. And maybe even pray that he reveals himself to you in a new way. Sometimes I've had a very Western approach of like, Jesus can reveal himself to me in ideas and philosophies and let Jesus show up in unexpected ways. Invite him to. Number three, trust God to bring justice to those who have wronged you. Justice doesn't mean that we don't report people for criminal activity. Absolutely we do that because that prevents them from hurting other people. Sometimes in the church we get that wonky, like, we're like, forgive them and just sweep it under the rug. No, you can hold people accountable. But forgiveness is not letting the person have rule and reign in your heart because you realize you're not judge. Jesus is. And so if there's someone who has hurt you deeply, know that Jesus doesn't miss it. He hasn't ignored it, and that he, we can trust him to bring justice. Let's pray.